Well, we're going to turn our attention back to the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 30. I wanted to come back to Isaiah because I feel like this chapter ties very closely uh, to what we've done the last couple of weeks on Sunday morning out of Ephesians. It was looking at us as being the chosen people of God that we've been predestined to adoption. That We're going to see some of these pictures, I think, here in Isaiah's prophecy. And so it's a useful time to uh, return to our Isaiah study tonight. Uh, we have been noticing in Isaiah's prophecy uh, that Isaiah is summoning the people to recognize that there is one foundation for their life. They're to put their complete trust in God. The background of that trust is remember that the nation of Assyria has conquered the northern nation Israel and has conquered all the fortified cities of the southern nation Judah except for the city of Jerusalem. And things look Well, grim, (laughs) pretty bad for the nation of Judah. It looks like things are over. But Isaiah has come in and said, trust God. Trust God and he's going to deliver you out of this. If you rely upon him, he's going to turn away those Assyrians. If you'll put your trust in him, he will accomplish his purposes for you. And so that is where we come in now to the 30th chapter, where we are now given this immense question Are the people going to trust God or not? Are they going to believe the prophecy of Isaiah and heed the words of God and put their trust in God to deliver them at this moment of crisis? Or are they going to rely upon themselves and look for an alternate way for their deliverance? So that's what we're looking at now in chapter 30. We'll read the first five verses. Isaiah chapter 30. And we'll begin in verse 1. This is the reading of God's holy word. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter of the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at Zoan and his envoys reach Haines, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings them neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace." So here begins Isaiah, and he simply decries what they're doing and calls them stubborn children because they are making plans and they are not in accord with God's plans. They're not listening to what God says they're supposed to do. They're making all of their own plans that are in counterproduction to what God is trying to accomplish. And I think that's such an amazing thing that here is Isaiah telling them, if you would trust me, I'll take care of you. But they're unwilling to trust God. They're unwilling to rely upon God for their deliverance. And you'll notice in verse 2, it says what they're doing is that they're going to rely upon Egypt. 
Rather than trusting God, who says, I will deliver you from the Assyrians, they are now going and turning to Egypt. And they are turning to them for an alliance. Verse 1, who make an alliance, well, that's not of my spirit. They're carrying out a plan, but that's not my plan. They think Egypt is going to be the nation that's going to save them. And so they're going to form an alliance with Egypt, and that is going to be their deliverance in their minds. And God says, you think that Pharaoh is going to protect you? You think that Pharaoh is going to save you? This action is actually going to bring about your shame. He says in verse 5, you're turning to a people that cannot help you, a people that will not profit you on that day. Verse 7, I think is hilarious. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I call her Rahab who sits still. You just sit there and do nothing. That's how useful Egypt is going to be. You want to trust in another nation when God is here saying, I'll give you all the protection that you'll need if you rely upon me. How interesting it is that we so often fall into the pattern of unbelief so that we accomplish our own plans rather than seeking out the will and the plans of God. And how easily we fail to understand that by trusting in anything else or anyone else except God always leads to our failure and shame. We want to rely upon our own strength, our own abilities. We rely upon other people. We put our hope in riches. We put our trust in this country. We put it in physical things. We think these are the things that will help us through our difficulties. And God's shaking his head and saying, why won't you believe in me? Why won't you turn to me with all of your trust? Why won't you look to me for your deliverance? And instead we go our own way, which always leads to our failure. Every single time that leads to our failure. How often we ask the wrong questions when it comes to difficulties in life, when it comes to making plans for our lives, when it comes to making decisions So often the questions we ask are, well, how much money will that make? Uh, How comfortable will that make me? Do I like the way that looks for my life physically? Will that bring me joy? Is that the, the hope that I'm looking for? This is going to be the answer to be pleasing to me. These are often the questions that we ask first and foremost. And maybe then we'll ask these other questions. Maybe not. Will this decision be good for my soul? Is the thing that I'm about to do for the good of my own spirituality? What will be the impact of this decision spiritually on my family? What will be the impact of this choice in the kingdom of God? We often look at decision in terms of jobs and occupation and careers and places we live and things we're going to do. And we ask all the physical questions and never stop to ask, will this be good for my life spiritually? Is this going to advance the kingdom of God? Is this going to be useful for my family's souls? Is this going to be something that will help them in their pursuit of God? I don't even know that sometimes we think of those questions. And if we do... They're usually after the fact, after the fact. I've witnessed that, of course, many times. I've had people who will say, I'm moving to such and such a place. Do you know if there's a church there? That's always a favorite of mine. That might have been a good question to ask first. 
That might have been useful to consider before you took the job and decided to move there. Maybe you should consider spiritual things first, not the paycheck and not the job. That's not the most important thing. And so often we do what we see Israel doing here. We do not think with spiritual intention. We don't think about how this decision could impact our faith, our spouse's faith, the future faith of our children and their grandchildren. We're often so much more concerned about the right here, right now, the temporary pleasures and comforts of this life. Do we trust God to make decisions based on Him and not based on ourselves? That is the crux of the question of this chapter. Will the people not look to their own I-think-so's logic and decision-making and recognize that they should rely upon God? And I want us to consider this in a positive sense as well. Just very quickly, how wonderful of a comfort and foundation it ought to be for us to know that we can turn our life over into the hands of God. We often approach that as a fear. You're asking me to, you know have to rely upon God and think in terms of spiritual outcomes and not physical outcomes and the the fallout that that might come out of making spiritual decisions first? Yes. And that's supposed to be a wonderful thing that the physical things do not have to be a weight upon you, that that doesn't have to be the focus anymore, that the focus can be upon God. And so from verse 8 to verse 17, you'll notice now God moves forward and describes the problem. And I think it's an important problem to consider. It's an important question to ask. Why do the people lack faith? Even though God is saying, I will provide for you, I will take care of you. I mean, let me piggyback off of what Scott's done for the last three lessons of God saying, if you'll seek God first, he'll take care of everything else. What stops us from doing that? That's what's going on right here. God has specifically said to them, if you'll trust me, I'll take the Assyrians away from you. And they refuse. Where is that unbelief coming from? Why is it that these people refuse to be willing to trust God in God's ways and in God's plans? Notice verse 8. And now go write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come and a witness forever. For they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy what is right, speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. What's the problem? The reason for their unbelief, the reason they cannot put their trust in the words of God is because they don't want to hear the words of God. There is no way to build up a faith in God to hand our lives over to Him and surrender ourselves to Him spiritually in every way if we don't hear what God has to say. If we don't know what He's trying to tell us, I submit to you that's where our lack of trust and our unbelief comes from. 
we don't know what he says and we don't believe it when he says it because we haven't read. Look at how God has always kept his word. Friends, is there one time that God has not kept his word? Has he ever gone back on a single promise? Has he ever broken anything that he's ever said to anyone? It hasn't happened. And yet sometimes we come along and think, well, I just have no basis to trust God. I have no basis to believe that he's going to take care of me. And yet here is God saying, that's because you don't know the things that I've taught you. You don't want to listen to the things that I've said. Verse 10 is shocking, isn't it? Verse 9 is bad enough. They're unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. He calls them rebellious people and lying children. But verse 10, here's what they say to those, the prophets, who are proclaiming the word of God. They're saying to them, don't prophesy to us. We don't want to hear those words. We don't want to hear what is right. Tell us the things that we want to hear. I love this, verse 10. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Tell us to turn aside from the path. We don't want to hear any more about the Holy One of Israel. Tell us what we want to hear. Tell us the things that will make us feel good. Tell us the things that will make us happy. Tell us about all those wonderful things. What a danger, what a warning that we have here that God is condemning the attitude of those who do not want to hear every single thing that God has to say. That they do not want to hear everything. These people want to hear only the good things. Just tell us that we're okay. Speak to us smooth things. I love prophesy illusions. Tell us it's going to be fine. Prophesy to us that Egypt's going to deliver us. That's what we want to hear. Tell us that it's okay that we're living for ourselves. Tell us it's okay that we're living for our comforts. Tell us it's okay to turn away and not trust God, but to put our trust in this world. Tell us that's okay, Isaiah. Isaiah says that's just not the case. God does not accept an attitude that does not desire to hear all that God has to say. And that reminds us that there needs to be such a great value on the truth of God's word. There needs to be a high value and desire for it. It is so easy with the pressures today to want to change that. And we want to get the attendance up. So what should we teach on? Well, let's teach on some easy things, right? Let's teach on some things that everybody in the world can agree on. We'll teach on some things like that. There's such an easy draw to that, to try to come up with things that might be simply appetizing for them so that we can pile people into the building, but not teach them all of God's word, not teach them the things that they need to hear. And it should be our desire to want to hear every word that comes from the mouth of God. It should be our desire to want to hear every verse that God has ever written down for us. To put it another way, we should want to hear the easy things and the hard things. We want to hear the well-known texts and we want to hear the obscure texts. We want to hear everything that God has to say, if it's in Genesis or it's in Revelation or anything in between. If it's words of comfort and if it's words of correction, whatever God has to say, we want to hear it. May we never have an attitude that says, well, we just want to hear something that makes me feel better. Would you talk about some things that makes the okay stamp on my life the way I'm going? That's what they want. 
Isaiah, just tell us what we're doing is fine. There's an easy temptation to desire that so that we can all tell one another, I'm okay, you're okay, and we can all go to eternal punishment together in that boat. We need to hear all that God has to say. Whatever is taught from from here, whatever is taught at all, must always be the very oracles of God and must always be of the utmost importance. Consider how that plays out. Listen to what God says He's going to do. Verse 12. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely upon them. Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly and in an instant. And its breaking is that like of of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. Here's God's response. You don't want to hear what I have to say, then your sins are going to crush you. And I think that is a useful reminder for us. How can we suppose that we are ever going to be saved from our sins if we don't desire to hear everything that God has to say? The Creator and Savior has spoken. So do I not want to hear what the Creator and Savior has to say about my life and what I'm supposed to do? How could I ever want to cut off what God says and say, well, I was only concerned about some of these things. And that's what God is saying. You don't want to hear what I have to say. Then your sins are not going to be dealt with. Instead, he says that your sins are going to crush you. Verse 14, your sins are just going to fall upon you. How can we ever suppose that there's going to be salvation? Can you imagine if you had the chance that you had some wealthy father, grandfather, something like that. And he is going to leave to you this immense, rich inheritance. Do you suppose that when the last will and testament is read, that you would want to hear every single word that is on that document to know exactly what you're going to receive and how it is all going to come out? I mean, I would just be on the edge of my seat if I had some rich uncle, whatever, who says, all right, I'm distributing it to everybody. Well, okay, I'm on the edge of my seat. What am I going to get? Tell me everything that's going to happen. Lay it all out for me. I'm right there. And how can we not all the more we're talking about every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just not be on the edge of our seat with intensity, wanting to know exactly what God has to say about that. How can we not want to know, okay, here's what God says about my life and what I'm supposed to do and what this forgiveness is all about and all that God is accomplishing in these blessings. There has to be an intense desire for that. We should look at the word of God, not as a duty or a chore, but a desire that I want to know what God has to say, because I have been given this rich inheritance, but the only way I'm going to receive it is if I know what he tells me about it. I have to know what he has to say. There's no way for us to inherit these things and find salvation if we do not put our trust in the word of God and all that he has told us to do. 
And now you would think as we come into verse 15 that this would continue this destructive, you stubborn children, I can't believe that you're not listening to me, rebellious, lying children as he calls them. But watch what he says in verse 15. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you will be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. In the midst of calling them rebellious, stubborn, you won't trust me for anything. You're relying on yourself and I'm offering you deliverance. He turns and says, you know what? If you would just come back to me, I'd save you. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. If you would just put your life in my hands, if you would trust my way of doing things, if you would seek the purposes of God, if you would seek the ways of God, or if I can use Matthew chapter 6, if we'd seek first the kingdom of God, if we would do that, if we would find that to be our passionate pursuit and utmost desire, it says, I'd save you. And I want us to recognize the challenge of what God is doing here. And ask the question for ourselves, what difficulty do we face? What crisis do we go through that we are unwilling to trust in God to take care of? Because what Isaiah is doing here is not theoretical. The city of Jerusalem is surrounded by Assyria. Assyria has taken all of the southern nation except this lone city. This is not a theoretical, you know, when times get tough, you ought to turn to God. This is life and death this moment for the people of Judah. It is the people of Jerusalem holed up inside this city while they are being made fun of by the Assyrians. We're going to get there in just a couple of chapters. Isaiah is going to switch to the narrative toward the end of the 30s here. About chapter 36, he'll switch over and describe for us. Here's how it all went. And God is saying in the moment of that crisis, trust me, do nothing. I'll send the Assyrians away. It's not just a theoretical, okay, I need to trust in God. It is when life explodes that we are called upon to trust God. It is easy to trust God, quote unquote, trust when things are good. Sure, I trust God. Everything's great. Look at my life. But when things go sideways, when disaster strikes, when tragedy comes... It is a calling upon us to rest in God. That is the message that we've seen over and over and again, Isaiah. The faithful don't panic. They trust in God and rely upon Him for the outcome. I have found this to be, I think, extraordinarily challenging, but I think also liberating in so many ways. This has been very real to me with grace. What are you going to do in the midst of all that? All right. There's nothing you can do about it. You can drive yourself crazy. 
Or you can just go, okay, whatever, Lord, you want to do here, that's what we're going to do. That doesn't mean sitting on our hands and doing nothing. We're trying to do what we can for her. But my hope and my trust is not in what I can do for her. My hope and my trust is not in medical advances. My hope and my trust is not in shams. It's in God of what will you do with this. I will not panic. I will not jump out the window. I will not forfeit my faith. I'll just wait and see what God has in store. That is what God is calling upon us to do. And it takes hard things in life to learn that. And we're put to that test every day. That's not a one moment decision. That's an every moment decision, especially in the time of suffering, especially in the time of distress and difficulty and trial. When things are falling down around you, will you believe in the promises of God? Will you believe that he can take care of us, that whatever comes about, the ultimate desire and the ultimate goal is the ways of God, the purposes of God, his kingdom, his will. That's all that matters. And so if that means life is shortened, if that means things go differently, if life doesn't go according to plan as we have it in a vision of this life, that will not rattle us, that will not shake us. That is what we are called to do over and over again. Unfortunately, you read the end of verse 15, notice the words, but you were unwilling If you would put your strength in God, he says, if you would rely upon him, do not have your strength in yourself. I would save you. So I love those three words there. Not only returning verse 15, but rest, quietness, trust. That's what he's looking for. Let your trust and rest in God be your strength. But the people are unwilling. Notice verse 16. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you shall flee away and we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. You hear their words. No, we're going to be okay. We can rely upon ourselves. We have fast horses. We're going to be all right. We have Egypt. It's going to be okay. And so God says, no. Seven verse 17. A thousand shall flee the threat of one and the threat of five. You shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on top of a mountain like a signal on a hill it's over you didn't trust me and so I'm not going to deliver you at this moment he tells the people I'm not going to be with you because you did not rely upon me now verse 18 therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you that is a neat image God wants to dispense grace to his children. This is just such a neat image. But what he's depicting right now is he can't do it because they refuse to trust him. He says, I'm sitting here wanting to be gracious to you. I want to deliver you. I want to accomplish these things. He says, but I'm going to have to wait. He waits Because you are unwilling to trust in me. I think that is such a great picture here that God is waiting to give this grace and this hope to those who will put their trust in him. He wants to do that. 
You ever picture God as well? He just doesn't really care. You know, I just don't know he's really listening up there. I don't know that he's really in the game. Here's God saying, I'm just waiting on you. I'm just waiting on you to trust me. I'm waiting for you to let go of the grip of life and turn these things over to the hand of God. I'm waiting for you to stop trusting in yourself. I'm waiting for you to stop trusting in the things of this world and turn your life over to me. He says, I'd be gracious to you. I'd pour out my blessings upon you. In fact, notice the rest of verse 18 there in the middle. So we'll start back at the beginning. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show you mercy. I found that statement profound. I had to kind of let that one bounce around in my brain a few minutes. He exalts himself. To show you mercy. It's a strange way to say that, isn't it? But that is a magnificent thing. God is showing mercy, which brings about his own exaltation. What a great picture that is given to us here. He exalts himself to show you mercy. I'm going to show you mercy. You want to know what that does? It brings God glory. That's one of the things that we're seeing when we're looking at this idea of adoption and predestined and chosen is This is all bringing God glory when we recognize what God's doing for us. I want to be merciful to you. The point is that the mercy of God and the grace of God is not supposed to just terminate on us. We just don't become consumers of it and go, wow, it's really great that God's been so gracious to me. I sure do enjoy that. There's supposed to be a reaction in our lives that comes from that. It is supposed to cause true trust in God. It is supposed to cause a radical life transformation so that we are pointing people to the mercy of God. It just changes everything. And I think it is so interesting how God stands different from all of creation. Because God's exaltation always brings about our good. And our own exaltation, when we try to exalt ourselves, always brings about evil and failure. I try to lift myself up, that makes a mess. I try to bring glory to God, things go well. Because God needs to be glorified. And God's purposes must be accomplished. And I put my trust in Him that He will do what is right and what is best and what is good. It is such a beautiful picture of who God is. That his exaltation is just and right because he acts for the good of his creation. To see God as high and lifted up and exalted in such a way that his exaltation accomplishes great things for us. That's what we're learning is that he's not like a human king who takes on all of that exaltation and honor and soaks it up into selfish, sinful, you know, horrors uh, against humanity. He takes all of that honor and glory and then dispenses good upon the people. The Lord waits to be gracious to you. Give him honor Give him your trust and he will bestow these blessings. What we see in this section is Isaiah is picturing 
God, what God is going to do for his people. From verse 19 over to about verse 26, we're going to notice in this section really the faithfulness of God on display. God desires to be gracious, and he says, so I can't do it right now. You're not trusting me, Judah. You're not relying upon me. So I'm going to wait. And now he's going to describe, here's the blessings to come. These are glorious blessings. 2,700 years ago, Isaiah prophesies and says, when the new people of God come, here's what God's going to do for them. So here we go. Number one, verse 19. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem, you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. I love this first declaration. Here's what God will do for his people in the future. He can't do it now to present Israel. They're full of sins who will not trust God. So here's Isaiah now looking down the tunnel of time and saying, I'm going to have a new people and these people are going to be different. And here's what I'm going to do for them. Number one, I'm going to be gracious to them. Because they're going to cry out to me. And then just underline those words. As soon as he hears it, he will answer you. That's awesome. That's just awesome. Here is God saying, with my new people, when they cry out to me, I hear them. I'm listening to their prayers. I quickly hear their cries. I respond to what is happening in their lives. Now, as we know from the scriptures, we don't always get the response that we want. And usually because we don't have all the information, we work on a very limited plane in life. We see only the physical. We don't see all the dynamics of what's going on in the spiritual realm. We don't see everything that's happening around us. We don't see the dynamic of one person who's praying for rain because they need it for their farm. And the other person says, no, don't rain because I just washed my car or whatever. You know, I mean, we've, we have such a limited view that we look at things so shallowly as if, well, if God didn't do this one thing in my life, clearly he's not answering prayer. But we don't think of the dynamics of what's going on in the scheme of God's plan. But he's made a promise. He's answering prayer. He hears our cry. He's compassionate and desires to hear when we cry out to him. His ears are not blocked and his back is not turned, but he hears the cries that we make. He listens to what we have to say. And that's why the New Testament over and over again instructs us, pray, pray to the father. He receives those words as a child speaking to a father. He wants us to speak to him. He wants us to open up to him and tell him all that is going on. He hears our cry. He listens and he responds. The second blessing that you'll notice knows verse 20. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction. So here is you're going to have to suffer now. You've rejected me. You have not trusted in me. And so you are going to be doomed because you've turned your back on me and decided to trust in Egypt. So that's what he's mentioning here. Yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. And when your ear and your ear shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way. 
Walk in it when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Oh, that is fantastic as well. Here is this promise that Isaiah says, here's what's going to happen in the future. I'm going to send my teacher and he's going to teach you which way to go. And I believe this is a messianic prophecy right here because we've learned this in our study of the gospel of John. Jesus comes to reveal to us the will and the ways of God. And Jesus comes through his teaching and through his life and shows us this is what you're supposed to do. And so here is his promise. I'm going to show you. You're going to see the teacher and he will show you how to live. He will show you which way to go. And his words will be with you when you start going to the left or start going to the right. You will have the very words of God. You will know how you ought to walk. His people would not be left in the dark. They would not be left to wonder, what shall we do? They would not be left to wonder, well, I don't know what is right or what is wrong. God's grace would be seen when Christ comes. When Christ comes, the ways of God open up. The teachings of God are revealed. The ways of God are now fully explained. And why the New Testament tells us things that angels and prophets wanted to know about and desired to look into now just explode in revelation to us. And we know what God wants for us. Here is Isaiah prophesying and saying, a teacher is going to come. He's going to show you the ways of God. And when that happens, verse 22 Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. What a great picture. God's going to hear His people. He's going to send a teacher to show them the ways of God. And people are going to stop trusting in everything else. That's all idolatry is, friends. Do not think of idolatry as some gold image that's over there in the corner that you sacrifice a virgin for on the fires. And there you go. I say, we don't have idolatry. That's not a problem for us. Idolatry is a huge problem for us. When we rely upon anything but the Lord, we have an idol. When we put our trust in wealth, in family, in friends, in job, in possessions... Anything that we're putting our trust in besides God is an idol. And here's what he's saying is the true people of God, they're going to trust in the Lord. These people, Israel, I said, trust me, they wouldn't do it. And so when my new people come, when they belong to that great Zion, he says, their trust will be fully in the Lord. They will no longer trust in broken cisterns like Jeremiah 2 describes. They're not going to put their hope in things that do not satisfy They're going to recognize that God is the giver of life and they will rely upon him wholly. It's one of the things I've enjoyed with you in studying John, John 5, John 6, bread of life, imagery over and over again, living waters. I'm trying to satisfy you. Will you trust God to satisfy your life or not? He is the fountain of living water. He is the living bread of life for you. Will you trust him in that? Will you believe it? He says, Isaiah says, 2,700 years ago, my people will believe it. My people will walk and trust in God and not trust in the things of this world. From verse 23 to verse 26, 
for the sake of time, I won't read it all, but he just continues to picture with these physical images the idea of a bountiful spiritual blessings being poured out. And God does that all the time. And we get later on in Isaiah, we're going to see that. Where Isaiah is not speaking of it literally, that there's literally going to be, you know, wine flowing from mountains and milk running as rivers and, and wildernesses turning now into fruitful fields. When you read imagery like this, you need to think the blessings of God are just exploding to the people. And you see it highlighted the most in verse 26 that really keys us in that. Moreover, the light of the moon shall be as the light of the sun. Well, obviously, that's not some literal thing to literal Israel. There is the hope of life and light that's going to come. He's going to shine before us. And the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days. When is that going to happen? Listen to it. In the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of His people and heals the wounds inflicted by His blow. It's going to be a day where God's going to come and He's going to heal His people. It's going to bind up the brokenhearted. I love how Christ took that imagery on Himself. He said, that's me. I've come to set the captives free. I've come to bind up the brokenhearted. I've come to let the blind see. I've come to have the lame walk. I'm here. That's what I've come to do. God will send somebody who will heal our wounds. God will send somebody who will deal with our broken hearts. That's what Christ would do for the world and bring healing to every single person who needs to be repaired by God. God can solve our problem because our problem is sin. Our problem is sin. We are broken and destroyed by sin, but Jesus is the solution for that sin. And Isaiah is speaking of that hope. Verses 27 through 33, very quickly, just a couple final words to consider as he now speaks of having faith in the purposes of God. What you're going to notice, we don't have time to read it, but you can kind of scan through it. 27 to 33, what he does is he now returns to the present and he says, now here's what I'm going to do in spite of your unfaithfulness. I'm going to shatter the Assyrians anyway. I'm going to shatter them and I'm going to drive them off. And so he spends his time talking about that. You can notice it very quickly, like in verse 31, the Assyrians will be terror struck at the voice of the Lord when he strikes his rod. And so here in this final section, you have them say, I am going to deal with the Assyrians. And the message is very simple. Though the present looks very grim, the future is bright. And this is a, a great hope and a great teaching point is that our faith is always in the long-term plans of God, even when we have short-term confusion. Things are a mess in the short term, and we don't understand how it's all going to work out, but there is faith in God's long-term plans. I have faith in the salvation of God. I have faith in the salvation of my soul. I have faith in all that God is going to accomplish. And that's what gets me through the present distress, even though I can't figure out how I'm going to get through it. That's what God's living with right here. He speaks to them. It's a repeated message. What did God tell Habakkuk? I know you don't understand what's going on, Habakkuk. I know that I'm raising up the Babylonians to destroy your people, but you trust in my long-term plans, even though you don't understand. 
What was the message of the book of Job? I know you don't understand, Job. And I'm not even going to give you the answers. You're supposed to trust in a powerful creator who put all things into existence and realize that your hope's in him. And not what happens to your flesh. Not what happens to your family. Not what happens to you physically. You trust God in his long-term plans. And that gets you through the chaos of the right now. Job had to do that. Habakkuk had to do that. We must not look at our circumstances now and pass judgment before God that the future must be a mess and God's not with us. That's the failure right here of the people. They see Jerusalem surrounded. God must have abandoned us. We can't trust him. It looks grim and we're all going to die. It's all over with. We need to call upon Egypt. And here's God saying, don't look at the present. Know the long-term plans of God. What he says will be accomplished. And you put your trust in that great word. When we were building our house back in 01 or 02, when the foundation was laid, all we had was just the concrete slab laid out there. And April and I walked around that slab and we thought, there's been a horrible mistake that's been made. This is too small. I mean, look how small this is. I can take like five steps and I feel like I've already crossed the whole thing. It just, it's just not right. I mean, we even talked to you. This is the, this, we, the plans must be wrong. Look how small this is. We were quite concerned. You, know, you got to fire the contractor. This is a mess. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, started to get framed up. And then the walls came up and you go, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, it's a big house now. But at the time, it didn't look right at all. It looked like a total mess. It looked like we were just completely a disaster. And we had to trust that Danza believed me. It's a big house. You'll be fine. And we looked at it and I don't think so. That's what we have to do with God. We look at our lives right now and go, this is all wrong. This is a mess. Do you trust in the long-term plans of God? Will you believe that God can work these things out? Even if it's not the way you think they ought to go, will you believe that God can work things out? Will you put, will you put your life in the hands of God? That's what he's calling us to do. That's what it means when the Apostle Paul comes along and says, the righteous live by faith. They don't live by what they see. And we so often live by what we see. The righteous do not look at what is seen. They look at the things that are unseen and they trust in an unseen God to carry them through. These people failed at that. May we not fail at trusting God to get us through all things. So I want to conclude then with just simple points. I believe it's five. Yep, five. Number one, true faith doesn't rely on human strength. True faith in God doesn't rely upon what we see, physical things, other people, or human strength. We don't rely upon those things. Number two, true faith desires the word of the Lord. That's how we build that kind of faith, is we have our nose in the word of God. That's how that comes about. That's how this all failed for them. He says, you stubborn children, you won't listen to my words. It must be our desire. Number three, faith repents of rebellious acts. God is saying, I'll be gracious to you if you just return to me. If you would just 
in quietness. Trust me. Believe in me. Our true faith then rests securely in the salvation of God. We recognize that God will provide and he will get us through. There's such a great promise in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There's nothing that's overtaken you that's not come and demand has provided you a way of escape. There's nothing too strong. Do you believe that great promise? God will not give you more than you can handle. We trust in the promises of God. And finally, number five, we believe in those purposes. We truly trust them. Poison looks out and sing invitation song. We're inviting you to trust in the purposes and plans of God. We're inviting you to see that God knows what's best. He is the all-knowing, almighty God. We live in a short, small realm, short-sightedly. And we have to trust in the one who sees all and knows all. Will you come and put your hope in his grace by turning away from your sins and being immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins? Won't you come now while we stand and while we